Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trusts, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. Premiered in 1898 in a performance conducted by the composer himself, Umberto Giordano's opera Fedora was a great success and had its American premiere at the Metropolitan Opera in 1906, starring Lina Cavalieri as Fedora and none other than Enrico Caruso as her lover, the Count Loris. Find out more about this dramatic tale in today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. Returning to the Met after an absence of 25 years, Giordano's opera Fedora is full of murder, political intrigue, and many more melodramatic twists and turns. Perhaps best known for its famous tenor aria, Amor Tivieta, the opera is nonetheless a stage vehicle for the prima donna. On today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, join the Guild's lecture of learning and community engagement, Stuart Holt, as he explains the drama and music of Fedora. We are diving into not-so-perfect lover, Giordano's Fedora. Now tonight, we are talking about this opera that is returning to the Met stage for the first time in 25 years. The plot is a bit complicated. So tonight, we're going to spend some time talking about our composer. We're going to do a little bit of history of the opera. We'll also talk a little bit about the Verismo style. And then we'll explore some musical examples to take you through the opera and hopefully unpack this tricky plot. Now, full disclosure before we start, I adore this opera. I think it is just one of the craziest pieces in the repertoire. I think the story is bonkers, but the music itself is really something that is quite ravishing. And as part of the Verismo canon, it is something that I hope gets performed more regularly with a new production finally returning. So a little bit about our composer. Of course, we're talking about Umberto Giordano. Born in 1867 in southern Italy, he wanted to be a musician and a composer for a very young age, but he devoted his study to music against his parents' will. Now, surprisingly enough, his parents didn't want him to be a banker or a lawyer or a doctor, they wanted him to be a fencing instructor. I'm not quite sure how you make a living doing that, but that was what they desired for their son. But he went against that and studied music. 
He studied at the Naples Conservatory, and in 1899, he entered a one-act opera competition. This was uh, sponsored by the music publisher Zonzonio. Now, his submission was one of 73. He did not win the prize, but the prize went to another composer that we all know very well, and that was Pietro Mascagni, and the opera that won was Cavalleria Rusticana. Now, even though Giordano did not win that competition, Zanzonio thought that there was something really promising about his work and what he could bring to the operatic world. So he offered him a commission for a full and complete opera. So not just a one act, but the whole enchilada. And Giordano settled on a plot that focused on a piece that was set in the slums of Naples, and it revolves around a laborer who vows to reform a prostitute if he is cured of tuberculosis. <laughs> the opera was titled Malavita, and it caused quite a scandal in Italy when it debuted in 1892. But it later traveled to Vienna and Prague and Berlin, where it saw great success. So I'm not sure if it was that those outside of Italy wanted more sordid plots, but the folks at home were not really buying into what he was selling. And while it's not performed today, the notable thing about this piece, Malavita, is that it has a strong connection to the Vrismo style. So we've got these slums, we've got somebody who is dying of an illness, we've got everyday people that are in a locale that audiences can connect with. Now in 1894, he had another opera, Regina Diaz. This was a complete failure to the point that it was removed from the stage after only two performances. So what happens with Giordano and how does he find his success? Well, that finally happens in 1896 with probably his best known work and the one that we as opera audiences are probably most familiar with, and that is Andrea Chenier. That led us to tonight's opera, which of course is Fedora. Now, Giordano was part of a group of composers known as the Giovanni Scuola, or the Young School. And this group of composers were all born just in the middle of the 19th century, and they all had ties to the Milan Conservatory. And while that name might not be familiar to you, you're going to recognize many of these composers. We've got Pietro Mascagni, then Ruggiero Leoncavallo, then Giacomo Puccini, we've got Francesco Cilea, Alfredo Catalani, and Umberto Giordano. Now, in working in this style, all of these composers were thinking about verismo and trying to connect with the audience and the public. And we talk a lot, I think, in the world of opera about verismo and how it's so great. But yes, what is verismo? Which is a great question. And what does it mean? So, of course, it is Italian for realism. Of course, it derives from vero or true. And it spans the 1890s to about the mid-1900s. And it actually began as a movement in literature that sought to portray the world with greater realism. And this resulted in choices of subject matter that were traditionally not deemed sort of appropriate for literature. So again, much like Malavita, that failed opera, 
It looked at lower classes. It looked at common people. It looked at locales that audiences could connect with. And it looked at stories that would interest the general public. But as we move into the opera world and we look at Verismo as a style, we see that most of the operas are anchored by four different tenets. The first being, of course, as I said, these stories are based on real-life characters from the lower classes of society that reflected the day-to-day -day life and struggles of ordinary people, probably featured local customs, and regional language and idioms. So if we use Cavalleria Rusticana or Pagliacci as an example, both of these operas take place in small Italian villages. We see real people working and going about their everyday lives. Now when we're thinking about Fedora, if you know anything about the opera, it is a little challenging. Fedora is a princess. The man that she's in love with, Loris, is a count. Her fiancé is a count. These are not necessarily everyday people. But what Giordano does is, is that he establishes those everyday people through the servants that we encounter in Act 1. There are party guests that we encounter in Act 2. And then also more guests that we encounter in Act 3. So those folks that are part of the milieu or the locale are featured in Fedora. Second tenant is, is that it often contained tragic and sordid plot twists. So an example, in Adriana Lecouvreur by Chilea, Adriana dies by inhaling scented violets that are dusted with poison. In Pagliacci, we have multiple deaths at the end of that opera. In Fedora, there are several plot twists that we'll discover as we go through uh, the plot this evening. Of course, the third, central themes of passion and violence. Verismo tends to be, as I like to say, full of blood and guts. And there's normally a high body count. There tends to be crimes of passion that are committed by gunshots or stabbings or very physical deaths. In Fedora alone, there are five people that die in the opera. That is a very high body count. And finally, our fourth tenant, the operas feature realistic sets or locales, realistic costuming, and portrayal of familiar acoustical sounds through the music, such as church bells. So if we use Cavalleria Rusticana or Pagliacci again, we are in that Italian village, real places. They also feature the sounds of church bells as part of that community. In Fedora, we're going to be visiting three different locales. St. Petersburg, Paris, and a villa in the Swiss Alps. All real places. Musically, in Fedora, we don't necessarily use the church bells, but we do establish the, establish the Swiss mountain Alps through uh, a shepherd's boy song and the use of a concertina. We also musically uh, set us in both Paris and in Russia in Act 1 and Act 2. So as we move forward and we know what Verismo is, what about this actual opera and what about the source material that it is based on? Well, it's based on a play by Victorian Sardou. He may be familiar to you because he is the same author that also wrote Tosca, 
again, another example of Rismo opera. The play itself opened in Paris in December 11th of 1882 and ran for 135 performances with Sarah Bernhardt in the leading role of Fedora. The Paris correspondent for the era called her performance magnificent throughout, the most brilliant of her remarkable career. So we know already that the role of Fedora is a diva. It is a star turn that requires lots of grandeur, pathos, great acting, and in our case, great singing. Now you may be asking yourself, the name Fedora, does the hat have anything to do with the opera, or the play for that matter? And actually, it does. In the play, Sarah Bernhardt wore a soft felt hat that soon became popular for women and, of course, became known as the fedora. But then the hat sort of evolved and changed, and for most of us in America, we know the fedora as a gentleman's hat. And that is because there was a gentleman by the name of Charles Knox and the Knox Hat Company, which was actually located in Brooklyn, New York, that debuted the fedora for men in 1883. Now, it's a little unknown as to whether Mr. Knox actually developed a real hat for men or if the female fedora from Europe was taking the craze and he decided to leap on it and say, can I create something else? We'll never really know, but the hat is intrinsically tied to the opera and the play. So, of course, the source material means that there has to be an opera that finally emerges. For Giordano, the source material entranced him from the moment he saw the play in Naples in 1885. He saw Bernhardt in the lead role, and he immediately wrote to Sardou to request the rights to convert the play into an opera. Unfortunately, he was working with a rather horrible track record of operas. Remember, he didn't have a success until Andrea Chenier, and Sardou was very loath to give up the rights to the play, knowing that this was not really a composer that had a whole lot of success. Zonzonio stepped in to try to request the rights to, from Sardou to be able to convert it into an opera, and Sardou said, okay, I'm going to play a little game. So he charged him an exorbitant amount of money to get the rights. And Zonzonio said, it's not worth it. We're not going to do it. So finally, Andrea Chenier debuts. It's a huge success. They go back to Sardou and said, now you have a hit on your hands, and now I will give you the rights to convert Fedora into an opera. So our librettist, Arturo Pugliotti, was born in Zadar in Croatia, and he started his career as a journalist, founding a newspaper at age 17. He went to study at the University of Vienna and Graz, but finally landed in Italy where he began to write poetry. And it was there that he not only wrote the libretto for our opera tonight, Fedora, but he's also the librettist for Francesco Solea's Adriana Lecouvre. So really a great sense of working not only in the Verismo style, but also two operas that really hone in on a central female character that at the end meets her death. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about how they work together, Coliuto and Giordano, 
but one has to guess that they had a very uh, effective working relationship, knowing that they only received the rights in uh, 1896, and the opera debuted two years later. That's a tight turnaround for a new work. So one has to imagine that there weren't a lot of changes and there wasn't a lot of back and forth between them, but they had a rather amicable working relationship. So the opera itself debuted on November 17, 1898 at the Teatro Lirico in Milan, and the opera was a second success for Giordano, building on his success with Chenier. It was quickly brought to the Vienna Staatsoper by Gustav Mahler, and then to Paris, where it was greatly admired by both Saint-Saëns and Massenet. Now, when the opera debuted, the opening night cast featured a woman by the name of Gemma Bellincioni as Fedora. Previously, she had created the role of Santuzza in Cavalleria Rusticana, and she was said to have an accentuated diction and an arresting stage presence, both highly praised in the Verismo style. And the first Loris was a rather young and up-and-coming tenor by the name of Enrico Caruso. Now, the opera itself came to the Old Met in 1906, December 5th. So interesting that this new production debuted on New Year's Eve, very close to when it uh, originally debuted at the Old Met. Caruso again sang the role of Loris, and Lina Cavalieri was the fedora. And since its debut, fedora has only appeared on this Met stage 35 times. The opening night was evidently quite a success, and according to the New York Times, at the end of the second act, the response after the principals had finished the final duet was so great, they were called several times before the curtain, they were overwhelmed by flowers, and it was finally then that Caruso signaled to the conductor that the entire scene would be done incomplete one more time. So I guess that begs the question, with so much furor and excitement about the opening night and the sort of joy of the piece, why isn't it done more? Well, I've somewhat alluded to this at the beginning. The plot is wild and crazy. The music, while rather melodious, doesn't always rise to the dramatic climaxes of the libretto, and in some cases, it doesn't always interpret the mood of what is happening on the stage. This has both been cited by musicologists and by critics alike. But perhaps the lack of appearances is the over-the-top plot, which then means that it's rather substandard. Perhaps it is too soap opera, if you will. Or, as I said, perhaps it's because it really is a star vehicle. We need a soprano who can bring all that we want in this role. And unfortunately, over time, that has meant that that star vehicle has become a role that sopranos tend to take on later in their career. So it may be a farewell performance. I think it's really exciting to see this work with Sonia Yoncheva, who's in her 40s, in the prime of her singing career, really showing us what we have to imagine was probably what Chilea really envisioned in terms of how the voice sounded, and the age of the singer that was presenting this work. Again, I'm hopeful that this will return to the standard repertoire with a new and exciting production. So with all of that, 
This is a lot of talking to finally get to what we're all here for, which is some musical examples. So let's dive in, and we're going to try to untangle this complicated plot. So Act One, it opens in the house of Count Vladimir Andreevich in St. Petersburg. And the Count, it's important to realize, is the son of the, uh, the, son of the chief of the secret police. All right? You're going to need to keep a bit of a scorecard with all of these characters. Now, keeping with the tenets of Verismo, we wanted to show some real people that we can associate with. The opera opens with the servants playing dominoes, and they are discussing the Count's marriage the next day to the Princess Fedora Romanov. Her wealth will help pay off the Count's immense debts. Keep that in mind as we move forward. Fedora arrives, and she is looking for the Count, and the staff go to find him, and Fedora admires his stunning home, which, strangely enough, she has never seen before. And this leads to the creation of an entrance aria. I think we're all familiar with Tosca or with Adriana Lecouvreur. There's that moment where the diva appears for the first time. There's traditionally uh, entrance applause when she arrives, and she sings some sort of flowing aria moment that really introduces her to the audience. And Giordano crafts this entry moment, providing an opportunity for not only applause, but also for giving us a sensitive piece that really demonstrates the infatuation that uh, Fedora is feeling for the Count in this moment. Now, this clip I'm going to show you is actually from the previous production at the Met. This is from 1997 with Morella Freni in the title role. Now, a little background here. Morella was 62, and she had been singing for 42 years when this recording was made. This was her final performance in a fully staged opera at the Met, although she actually returned in 2002 to open the season in a gala concert, which actually featured Act Two of Fedora. Now, I've sort of cut and pasted this scene so you get a real sense of what this can look like. We will see her arrive in the scene, and the audience reaction stops the show. It is exactly the entrance aria that Giordano has envisioned, to the point that the conductor has to start the intro music again for her to pick up. Then it will crossfade into the aria where she takes in this space and this gorgeous portrait of the Count.
So immediately we get a sense of this sweeping melody, a thick orchestra with lots of strings, the use of woodwinds, and really creating a glorious sort of sound for her to ride over. Of course, suddenly policemen appear carrying the wounded Count Vladimir. Again, keeping with the tenets of Verismo, a plot twist occurs within the first 10 minutes of the opera. The French diplomat de Serieux arrives and introduces himself and Fedora is warned that the Count's injuries are serious. Of course, the police question Fedora and the servants about the Count's enemies. A coachman explains that he had driven the Count to a club. After 15 minutes, he heard two shots and then saw someone rush by, leaving a trail of blood in the snow. De Serieux explains that he arrived at that moment and found the Count in a pool of blood with a revolver that the staff confirms he always carried with him. Now the staff remember a curious old woman who had delivered a letter to the Count earlier that day, but when Fedora searches the Count's desk, she discovers that it has been stolen. Now the police believe that this is an attempted assassination that is politically motivated, knowing that Count Vladimir's father is the chief of the secret police, but the porter remembers that another stranger called on the house and was left alone in the salon, but quickly left. Fedora is convinced that this stranger is the assassin and she swears to take vengeance on a cross that she has, that she received from her mother. Now, immediately, this is another plot twist that I don't think any of us saw coming. In this moment, she takes this cross and she decides she is going to swear vengeance on the fact that her fiancé has been shot. The music here is completely different than that gossamer soft setting that Giordano created in the entrance aria. This is much more declamatory. It spans the real width of the vocal range and has a soprano really showing us those acting chops very early on into the opera. This clip is from the dress rehearsal and features Sonia Yoncheva, who is the fedora that you will see tonight or later in the run, in the moment when she swears vengeance on this bejeweled cross.
So in these two moments alone, we see the, the, the capacity of the voice that's required. We see somebody who goes all the way down into those chest tones that we just heard to those floated pianissimi that we heard in the entrance aria. So we are really asking the soprano to use all the tools in the vocal toolbox. Coming out of this, the porter remembers that the stranger's name who came was Ipanov, Loris Ipanov, who happens to live in the house opposite. The police leave to arrest Loris just as the doctor enters to tell us that Count Vladimir has died and Fedora collapses in despair, thus bringing Act One to a close. Moving into Act Two, we take off to Paris. I should mention that the set for this production is designed like a set of matryoshka dolls that open out, and they unfold and transform with each act. However, David McVicker said that the set is about memory, so there's always an element from each previous locale, and specifically the portrait of Count Vladimir. Fedora's fiance remains throughout. So the other thing that uh, David McVicker does with this is that he also sets up the character of Vladimir as a ghost who will appear later in this act. When it opens, we are at a reception at Fedora's mansion in Paris. Her cousin Olga introduces her latest flame and protege, a Polish pianist, Lezinski. Deseria is also there, the French diplomat from Act One, and he is shocked to see that Fedora is accompanied by Loris. However, Fedora explains that Loris is falling in love with her, and she has decided that she is going to get a confession from him because he has no prior knowledge of her relationship with Count Vladimir. At this point in the party, someone makes a notice of the gorgeous bejeweled cross she has around her neck, and Fedora tells everyone there that it contains a potion to end all life's ills. I would say that's some pretty strong foreshadowing about, of what may be to come. Olga breaks this rather severe moment by introducing the pianist who is going to play, and Deseria is intrigued by Olga, and he launches into a comedic aria that explains, Russian women are the true daughters of Eve, both adorable and hostile. And is this comedic moment that sort of breaks up this rather dark moment with this cross revelation. So we have two arias that are going to come back to back that break up what we have surrounded ourselves with, which is becoming a very dark piece. And in this music, Giordano really exploits the idea of what we typically think of as Russian music. We hear irregular rhythms, and he even goes as far as adopting a Russian folk song for the melody of this aria. For this, we're going to go back to the 1997 production, and this is Dwayne Croft as Deseria. <laughs> Thank you. 
So we get something completely different from what we've heard up to this point. This is countered by Olga's aria because, of course, she's not just going to listen to uh, Desiria talk about women this way. She has a response of her own. And she compares Parisian gentlemen to the wine of the widow Clicquot, a.k.a. Champagne. Now, both of these arias, again, they inject that humor in this dark story. And here, Giordano goes all out with sparkling woodwinds and strings and really allows the voice of the soprano to dance over things. Now, this clip that we're going to watch is from the final dress rehearsal, and it is Rosa Feola, who is going to be playing Olga in the performance tonight and in future performances. I should also mention that the Deseria that you will see in performances will be Lucas Meacham. Um, but in this, we get to hear Rosa sort of dance over this light strings and woodwinds and really sparkle like we would expect champagne to. she's the perfect foil to Fedora. She's light and airy and happy, while Fedora is very focused on one thing, and that is revenge. Coming out of this moment, it leads us into the one big hit of the opera, Amor Tivieta. And this is Loris's aria. And in the aria, of course, Loris tells Fedora not only that he loves her, but she loves him. 
So there is a clip from the performance, but the Met also released a clip that shows Pedro Bachawa, who will be our Loris, in rehearsal on the subterranean sea level rehearsal room with the orchestra and maestro Marco Emiliato. And I pulled that clip because I think it's an amazing opportunity to see how an artist works without the costumes, without the makeup, in the rehearsal room, and watch the conductor give them some thoughts about what they need to do. So here is Loris's aria, and this melody will continue to haunt us for the rest of the lecture. So truly, there is something thrilling about this one hit that Giordano has written. Now, unfortunately, the melody gets spun out throughout the rest of the evening. And as we come out of this moment, the pianist reappears. He plays, and Fedora and Loris are left alone as she tries to coach a confession from him. He finally admits that he did kill Count Vladimir, but he is unwilling to say why. Now, Giordano has this moment play out over just the piano. So he creates a faux Chopin nocturne, and then it immediately creates this odd tension because we have this delicate piano piece with this moment where she is trying to extract a confession from him. And visually, what we see on stage is them acting that out. But to our ears, we hear this light, delicate, beautiful piano music. So it does automatically put us on edge as a listener and as a viewer. In order to capture this moment, we're going to go back to the 1997 production. This has Morella Franey, of course, and this time our Loris will be Placido Domingo. The pianist... I should also say, maybe familiar to many of you, because we do see him. He has blonde locks. He traditionally wears red socks when he plays. It is Jean-Yves Thibodeau.
So coming out of this, it ends up being that they kiss. She immediately wipes the kiss off of her lips and he leaves. And news arrives that there's been an assassination attempt on the czar. And the party, of course, breaks up. Now, as it breaks up, it is accompanied by a gorgeous intermezzo. Now, as I said, David McVicker makes an interesting choice in creating this ghost character. And Fedora sits down to begin to write a letter to Count Vladimir's father, the chief of the police, accusing Loris of murder. And as this happens, she is sitting at the desk, and the curtain pulls back, and there is the ghost of Vladimir. And McVicker goes one step further with then having him approach her. They have a moment where they dance, and she sort of feels his strength. And that is the fuel she needs to go back to the desk to finish writing the letter to seal the fate of Loris. But the music is gorgeous. And if we know anything about Cavalleria Rusticana, we know that the famous intermezzo from that that was used to great acclaim in the film Raging Bull, that interme intermezzo is so well known. I wish that this intermezzo from Fedora was just as popular because the music really is beautiful.
Of course, she finishes the letter. The police enter and tell Fedora that Loris is under surveillance, and they've also heard that his brother, Valerino, is also under suspicion for political activity. Fedora suddenly adds his name to the letter to the police as well. Loris returns, and Fedora accuses him of murder and sedition, and he finally explains why he killed Count Vladimir. Here comes the next plot twist. He discovered that Vladimir was having an affair with Loris's wife, Vanda. When he confronted them, Vladimir shot at Loris, and Loris shot back in self-defense. His wife, Vanda, ran from the scene, only to later die of pneumonia. And as proof, he shows her the love letters that uh, Vladimir had wrote to his wife, and it ends up being revealed that Count Vladimir was only after Fedora's money to get him out of debt. Fedora, of course, is overwhelmed in that moment that she realizes that she is in love with Loris, but she also realized she has sealed his fate by writing that letter saying that he is responsible. In order to prevent him from being captured, she says, why don't you spend the night with me here in Paris? And he does. Which takes us to act three. It's several months later and we have now moved on to Fedora's villa in Switzerland. The act opens with alpine horns and a melody being sung by a herdsman. You can listen for that tonight or when you go to the opera. But Giordano immediately puts us in this locale of Switzerland. We know what that sounds like when we're there. It ends up being that de Serieux arrives and tells Fedora that as a result of the letter, Count Vladimir's father has arrested Loris's brother for being part of the plot to kill the Count. Here comes another plot twist. While in prison, the Neva River overflows, flooding the prison and killing the brother. When it's discovered that the brother has died in the flood, Loris and their brother's mother is overwhelmed with grief, and she too dies. Fedora now realizes that she is responsible for the death of two people and pleads with God to not save her, but save her beloved Loris. Ends up being that Loris arrives. He is concerned that he hasn't received any letters from his mother or brother. Well, they're not alive to send letters. But a telegram arrives letting him know that he has been pardoned for what might have occurred with his possible political espionage, and he can return to Russia and his family. But he also discovers a letter that had been sent at an earlier date that tells him of the death of his brother and mother, lost in the mail. It also includes the information that the identity of the woman in Paris who wrote the letter will soon be revealed. Loris, of course, swears vengeance on that woman and believes that Fedora knows the identity of the woman, but then realizes the truth. She begs him to forgive her, and when the proof does arrive that will reveal that she is the author of the letter, in despair, she reaches for that necklace, rips the top off of it, and drinks the poison inside and begs Loris to forgive her. And the curtain falls at the end of Act 3, and we've now seen five people die. 
I wanted to show this final scene because I think it is a gorgeously created set of music. But instead of taking us back to 1997, I want to take us to a filmed production that was done in 2020 during the height of COVID by a New York City company by the name of Teatro Gratacello. And they filmed it in a studio. You will see that the Loris and the Fedora are quite far away from each other because of the protocols that were in place. And it just is with piano. But we get a real sense of the storytelling. Now this is a very long scene. So what I've done is I've sort of edited together so we get some crossfades and we get to see Fedora move through this moment. But what I want you to notice is that at the end, Giordano brings back that locale by having that poor shepherd boy herdsman being heard off in the distance singing as Fedora dies in Loris's arms. Oh, 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 oh,
So in conclusion, is it the best opera? Mm, probably not. But I will say it's an enjoyable night at the theater. It gives us all of the things that we want. High drama, great music, a gorgeous design from this production, both for costumes and for set. And it keeps us guessing throughout the evening. As David McVicker said, it really is just a chance for you to sit back and bask in a night out. That was the Guild's Director of Learning and Engagement, Stuart Holt, discussing Umberto Giordano's Fedora. The production, featuring Sonia Yoncheva and Piotr Bekshawa, will be seen live in HD worldwide on January 14, 2023. For more information, visit metopera.org and make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.